The COVID-19 pandemic has turned our world upside down. Meeting this challenge is bigger than any Australian. From how we work and how we live. Stay at home. Stay at home. Stay at home. Don't travel. To the very basics of human interaction. Keep that social distance. If you're in an enclosed space, you should be wearing a mask. This is a time of total upheaval. It is a test of our nation. If you want this to be over, you've got to follow the rules. For many, 2020 will be the toughest year of our lives. And as we look to life beyond the virus, we ask, so now what? Today, social cohesion and the assault that the pandemic has unleashed on the bonds that tie our community together. (laughs) Toilet paper anarchy in full flight. I just want one pack. No, not one pack. People are acting like jerks, drongos and bloody idiots. I can't be more blunt about it. Stop it. Well before the virus, the 21st century was already testing those bonds, rising inequality. For a lot of Australians, everything's going up but their wages. Violent extremism. They will think twice before setting foot on our land. The influence of social media and, of course, increasingly tribal and bitter politics leading to harsher and more divided communities around the world, including in Australia. A lot of these people are from non-English-speaking backgrounds. They're alcoholics. The coronavirus threatens to push already stretched social bonds to breaking point, and the effects aren't always in ways we might imagine. You need to get off this trolley now. Call the police. Apologies. This scuffle unfolded in a Melbourne coal. Oh, Early on, the message was simple. We're all in this together. We'll get through this together. We'll get through this together, Australia. But while we might have all been in this together, the impact has definitely hit some a lot harder than others. This government have left behind students and young people. I work in hospitality as a barista and had to leave my job. Arts and entertainment workers. Quite literally in the last fortnight, we've lost every contract for the whole year. Disability support workers. I'm here because my job no longer exists. Temporary visa holders. Not many jobs going, uh, a lot of competition for all those jobs, so yeah, it's pretty tough getting work. Age, gender, wealth, job sector, cultural background, all are factors likely to play a major role in how we experience and recover from the pandemic. So what will all that do to the social fabric holding our nation together? So I'm going to need some help to try to work all this out, and I'm delighted to say that I have some. Professor Michelle Grossman is Research Chair in Diversity and Community Resilience at Deakin University, and Dr. Rebecca Huntley is a Principal at Vox Populi Research. Yes, that's what Vox Pop actually stands for, and they both join me now. Thanks so much to both of you for being here to help me. Absolute pleasure to be here. It's lovely to be with you. I just want to start with the observation that actually came out of an ANU study that on the onset of the pandemic, and even right up to the point before Victoria entered a second lockdown, social cohesion was actually up across Australia so far as you can measure it. What do you think? Why do you think that was, Michelle? Look, I think social cohesion um, was up, and I think some of the indicators of social cohesion rose, because it's quite common to see people pull together in more intensified ways when they're facing some kind of crisis or shock. So there was, um, for example, a consensus, uh, the formation of a national cabinet at the political level. um, And there was lots and lots of 
goodwill, I think, around the idea in communities that what we needed to do in a crisis situation and also in a period of significant uncertainty was to really look at how we could support each other, how we could leverage uh, our common strengths and see if we could get through. And I think that that uptick in social cohesion was also very affected because at that stage, people were quite hopeful that what we were looking at was a relatively sharp but also short crisis. Um, and people could clearly imagine our being able to navigate our way through it in, in fairly short order, which of course has not been true. But I think at the beginning of the pandemic, certainly there was that sense. Rebecca, I wonder if there's this idea, though, of a shared threat bringing solidarity. So one of my favourite German sociologists, and yes, I have a favourite German (laughs) sociologist, a guy by the name of Ulrich Beck, he made the point that if you want world peace, then you need to declare war on Mars. So this idea that if we have a shared threat or a common enemy or something like that, then suddenly our differences fade into the background and we cohere. We'll get through this together, Australia. We all have a role to play, employers nurses, doctors, teachers, scientists, friends, family and neighbours. I know we'll all do our bit. Yeah, it seems to me like we're looking at a different phase now where suddenly instead of having a converging interest in fighting the virus, we have divergent interests with our economic situations and our our health situations and so on. And the seams are beginning to fray. Do you think that's a fair way of looking at it? So I think we have to note two things. The first is that social cohesion at a time of crisis happens if we think that the burden is largely shared. (laughs) So if we think that we're all pulling together, then we will all pull together. And the second thing I think is we need to be clear about the kind of threat that we face. So there is something about a war, so an external enemy that's not a, a domestic enemy, the idea that there might be a bushfire or some kind of natural phenomenon. We are not pulling together when we look at threats like climate change. (laughs) So we see those threats quite differently. And the nature of climate change means it's a threat that's elongated, so it's spread out. So the nature of the threat is important and the sense of a shared burden. And what I thought, I was waiting at the beginning of the pandemic to think, this kind of social cohesion is going to fall apart. The first multimillionaire gets to travel to pick up their yacht. <laughs> or the fir- or the first mate of a politician gets to go somewhere that we don't get to go. The yacht owned by Melbourne millionaire Mark Simmons sailed with an exemption to Queensland last month. Those not being knocked back include Hollywood's elite. I mean, if you're Tom Hanks from California, you're okay. If you're Tom Hanks from Chermside or Castle Hill, sorry, uh, you're not coming in even to your brother's funeral. The moment that that starts to happen, the moment that access to privilege or money means that we're not all pulling together, the crisis becomes the way we live, not just a short burst of anxiety and, you know, something that a storm that will ride together, then things start to fall apart and the kinds of inequalities that existed in society before, the kinds of tensions, the kinds of resentments, they become exacerbated. Ongoing anger over AFL officials flying in to their hotel hub. It is a bad look and it is a double standard. Where's the consistency? Where's the compassion and where's the common sense? It might be more than that as well, that the experience of us all being locked down or whatever that we might be going through impacts us in some such different ways that it's hard for us to say that we're in this together because what might be fun for you as you go through this pandemic might threaten my livelihood. 
uh, or it might threaten my life or something like that. I think the panic has set in because we're isolated as a suburb, sort of like lockdown by postcode and we're all being punished for it. The frustration is that it's not consistent. It's different everywhere you look. Let me make a comment about that because I think it's a really important point. One of the really promising and helpful things at the beginning of the pandemic in terms of social cohesion was actually happening at the national level. So if you think about social cohesion, um, as I do, it says, look, social cohesion is really made up of belonging, inclusion, participation, recognition and legitimacy. That sense of belonging at the beginning of the pandemic was being fostered through national discourse and at the national level. Yeah, strong, consistent messaging from politicians in terms of inclusion, which includes things like equal opportunities, access to labor market and so forth. There was the leveling effect of things like JobKeeper. OK, and the federal government and the states were, you know, dishing out money very properly and appropriately and saying we will try to cushion and soften the blow where we can. One of the early signs of fragmentation in national consensus and therefore in terms of national belonging was the devolution back to states. So I think that one of the really problematic things was the fragmentation we started to see that actually is a feature of federalism. States starting to pull in different directions, certain kinds of political fault lines that had been temporarily tamped down beginning to reemerge. And I think that a lot of that was actually then picked up and exacerbated by really important material differences. For example, people who needed to continue to work, who didn't want to stay home and, and isolate or get tested because they really could not afford to do so and had been excluded from some of the safety nets that Commonwealth and state governments were offering. But, but you needed that federal system, didn't you? Because it's such a big country with such varying circumstances across it. I mean, imagine if you had the whole country going back into lockdown because there was an outbreak in Melbourne, for example. No, absolutely. And I agree. Look, I'm, I'm a fan of federalism for all sorts of reasons. I think the, the, the issue is not so much do we have differences which are healthy and, and, and the fact that we've got a federated system is a really good example of that. It's not about getting rid of differences. It's actually about how we manage them. And I think that the fray and the fragmentation has started because there have been some quite deep-seated disagreements about how we manage diversity and difference on many levels, federally, but also right at the grassroots in terms of communities and, and neighborhoods and, and social connectedness. So would both of you be prepared to indulge me for a second in laying out a really crude scheme for how I think society might be divided as a result of this experience? <laughs> Sure. <laughs> Thank you. I suppose you don't really have a choice. <laughs> and feel free to critique these if you like. But basically, I feel like you can break society into four broad groups with respect to their experience in this pandemic. So group one has been inconvenienced by the pandemic and lockdowns and so on, um, but they haven't really been harmed in any serious way. Life's been a bit crap, but, you know, they're financially fine. They'll get through this. It'll be okay. Group two has been brought to the brink by lockdowns, particularly financially. But if it goes on much longer, then they'll be wiped out. And so they're really on edge. Group three has already been wiped out by lockdowns and they're going to need government support any way that it goes. And so further lockdowns probably don't make the situation worse, but they prolong their experience of it. And then group four have serious health problems. And the minute that we open up, their health is being compromised. So they're facing greater risk as a result of that. 
Now, if that's broadly and even just crudely correct, then it seems to me that it doesn't matter what we do in response to this pandemic. There's always going to be a lot of fighting, isn't there? Because any lever that you pull is going to harm one group, benefit another group, and meanwhile, group one just sort of skates along and doesn't really care. No, I think that's right. And I, I wondered, you know, and it's a it sounds perverse, but I've been watching all the indicators you know, all the surveys that measure how people feel about government response to lockdown and how we're going. And I always thought, when is the moment where everybody says, oh, yeah, it's collective sacrifice to protect group four and collective sacrifice in terms of our taxes to protect to group two and three? When will there be a point where group one, two and three say, nah, Group four, we're prepared to throw them under the bus. They clearly have no understanding of the difficulties being faced by people to keep business alive, to keep jobs. In Australia, we are still potentially better off not having an economic lockdown in the first place. You know, you can just feel that happen in sentiment, in conversations with people before you see that happen in the polls. I mean, I think one of the interesting things about, you know, the way that you've divided us all, Waleed, in my profession we call that a segmentation. So you can use that another time. And it's, it's, a, it's an economic and health segmentation, I suppose. But what's really clear is that for Group 1, they have a different form of mobility, right? So they can actually do their work from home and in some ways, particularly if they're not homeschooling kids, their life is materially better in some ways. You know, they don't have to commute. They can do all kinds of things. And we often hear them say, this really suits my lifestyle and I don't want to return. They're also in reasonably, they feel secure in their jobs. They don't feel like they have to worry about their mortgage. And they don't want a return. They're actually quite calm and peaceful about it. So we actually are, it is going to be really interesting. And I think we're starting to see that happen in group one, in group one, two, two and three in particular, about when are we going to throw group four under the bus? Um, I agree with everything that Rebecca has just said. And Waleed, I actually think that your, your, your framework is pretty spot on. I probably would disagree a little bit, though, um, on, on a couple of points. First of all, group four, serious health problems. If you look at who's actually been hardest hit in health terms by the pandemic, it's actually aging people. I don't, I don't consider aging a health problem. <laughs> Just, yeah, sorry, that was inelegantly yeah. expressed. All I really meant was that they're vulnerable in a health sense. Yes, so yes. in that context, I think, I think, yes, yeah. and I and I think that yeah. obviously includes older Australians. I actually would go even a little further than what Rebecca said. I think Group One, inconvenience but not themselves harm, would be quite prepared to throw Groups Two and Three under the bus. Yeah, um, potentially. You know, absolutely. Uh, yeah, you know, rather than give something up. But I actually think there is something potentially positive that can emerge from this. One of the positive things, if there is the political and social will to actually grapple with it, is to understand better what is happening in groups two and three, and that is particularly around the precarity of labor. Okay, so if this pandemic has has done nothing else, it has exposed the existing harms that are created by the gig economy, by precarious labor, by the fact that people are already living hand to mouth. So you've got people who are already on the brink and the pandemic's just made it worse. And you've got people who are already wiped out, but they were teetering on the edge as well. And I think that this is an opportunity for a real wake-up call to say, well, look at these fragilities, look at these existing Mm. weaknesses that we were all too prepared to paper over and just say this is part of the new order. Well, wham, what are we going to do about it now? (laughs) 
One way you can maintain social cohesion under stress is really through trust, I suppose. And by that, I mean trust in each other, but probably even more importantly, trust in the institutions that are guiding us through this, that are making the decisions that are coming up with policy. You know, there's all kinds of hardships that we're going through, but if we trust what the government's doing, if we trust what the health authorities are saying, then we can probably in some way reason our way through those hardships and come up with a civil glue, if you like, to keep us together. Now, as I say that, I hear myself articulating the problem because there seems to be a collapsing trust in the institutions that we now most desperately need to guide us through this. Well, Ed, I'm not sure that our trust is totally collapsing. Politicians, amazingly, continue to have much higher approval ratings than you would think, uh, you know, when you when you look at the sort of noisy atmosphere on, on social media and all the criticisms have been leveled. Now, that may not last, but I think that trust in government and the desire for transparent and accountable and honest leadership, it really demonstrates the extent to which people yearn for that, particularly in times of crisis. When when you think about trust in police, for example, so in Melbourne, you know, we, we've taken a big hit, particularly in relation to the lockdown of the towers. On the other hand, look at the rise uh, in people willing to dob in, you know, neighbours um, or others. I mean, you, you, you look sorry, at... So, sorry, sorry, that, that's your sign of trust? <laughs> that we're willing to, to dob in what, what, I'm, what, I, what I'm saying is that we're getting some contradictory signalling. On the one hand, people have been... Let's take the police as an example. On the one hand, many people have been highly critical of what they've seen as some of the more heavy-handed tactics used by police, very narrow and rigid interpretations of, of various health directions and regulations. A young mum arrested in her home over a Facebook post. What's this? Ultrasound in an hour yeah, she's pregnant. You're under arrest in relation to incitement. Incitement? Yeah. What on earth? Excuse me, what, what on earth? And you're discriminating and you're not authorised by the Australian government to even question me about it. We want you to give your name and address. I don't. I'm not lawfully required to. I'm just asking what your reason for travelling is. Well, I don't need to tell you that. I don't know you. Have I committed a crime? No, I'm just asking why you're travelling today. Have I committed a crime? Thank you. On the other hand, they are turning uh, to police hotlines in unprecedented numbers to insist that other people should be following the rules, which is itself a sign of social cohesion. Yeah. So I see that, I see that, but I think you could paint a similar or analogous picture of, for example, how we would or did respond to the war on terror. But that's not a sign of it operating in a cohesive way. That's a sign of it operating in a divisive way. No, and also there's there's an interesting interaction in Australia, particularly between trust and compliance, mm. between the fact that we are largely as a community pretty compliant. We often mm. do what we're told to do. And when we're doing what we're told to do, we really want other people around us to do that as well. And we get quite annoyed mm. <laughs> when they yes. don't. Yes. So, but, but this is where I wonder about the level of trust. So, yes, you're right. Political leaders do enjoy higher approval ratings, but that always happens in times of crisis, unless you really mm. stuff it up. I think it's actually quite an accomplishment for a leader not to become more popular in a mm. crisis, I think. Look, one reason I think that the, the trust quotient has risen, particularly in relation to health institutions and to a certain extent in government as well, I can't remember another time in my own memory when we have had so much explanation and so much data 
presented mm-hmm. to justify and explain certain decisions. The trust gap that you can get is people saying, well, you're telling this, telling us this, but we can't see it. Now, in relation to health issues, they're actually letting us see it. And I think that that's a really healthy thing. Right. But this is also why you saw skirmishes in Victoria around things like, for example, who came up with the curfew and mm. is that based on health advice and what exactly is the nature of the modelling and you have an epidemiologist challenging that and so on. So, yes, I can see what you're saying, but I can still see the countervailing element of it. And maybe the most spectacular expression of that, Rebecca, is the proliferation of conspiracy theories. We've seen 5G getting rolled out during this, uh, this COVID uh COVID pandemic and 5G can damage your biological system, cancers, DNA damage, the whole the whole thing. So it's time now to uh, you know to stop the rollout. That happens because you don't trust what you're being told, no matter how transparently it's being laid out before you. You're right. It's an indication of a lack of trust, but it's also an indication of the rise of the, I would say, empowered expert. That is the person who thinks that. I can make a decision based on not necessarily education, but on my own internet searches. And it's a kind of consequence of this kind of ideology around individualism and empowerment and connected to the lack of trust in experts. And that is not widespread in the community, but it is in a small group of people. They're the same people who think this is all a conspiracy. There's a lot of overlap with people who think that vaccinations are a conspiracy, people that think that climate change is a conspiracy. But the problem, of course, is that it doesn't matter that they don't have to be 15 or 20% of the population. They can only be two or three. But if they are in the right, if they're, if they're really, really prolific on social media, it's not so much that they can influence people. They can think that other people can think that those views are more broadly held and that's a problem. But, but you're talking there about a hardcore of conspiracy theorists, whereas I wonder if it's actually a much broader spectrum than that. There are those who are saying, you know, the virus is a hoax or it was made in a lab or whatever. But then there are those who are saying things like, no, the virus is real but it's being overstated how dangerous it is or whatever. So it's a very broad coalition, if you exactly. like. Exactly. And there are people who imagine, and again, to go back to my example before, there are people who think that people with power, privilege and access are not living the same life under lockdown that other people are. And this can breed the same kinds of resentments that existed before the pandemic. But, I mean, I just want to go back to this point about trust and leadership. What has kind of fascinated me, particularly around some of the premiers, and I think about Gladys Berejiklian and obviously Dan Andrews and, and um, you know, there's, it's really interesting that quite diligent, quiet, almost nerdy managerial <laughs> leaders and, and quite unconventional leaders in some ways because of, in terms of their background are doing relatively well. And is it that we're turning to, is it that what we trust is not kind of big, bold vision leaders anymore because we've lost face in that vision, but somebody who's prepared to get up at 7am and stand next to the chief medical officer day after day and quietly and diligently explain to people what they're doing. All gyms need to have a COVID marshal in place. You need to stay at home. This is no ordinary school holidays. The one and a half metres has to be part of our lives. I know it's inconvenient. I know it's difficult. I know we'd all rather be doing other things today, but that's not the reality we face. Both of those premiers are quite different in terms of their political background and how they present. But I think that there is a new kind of trust in just... 
the hardworking, you know, the hardworking nerd. And as a hardworking nerd, <laughs> I quite like the, <laughs> the hardworking nerd who, who believes what the, the scientists and statisticians and experts are telling them. I, I think I would love a world, world run by hardworking nerds. I think it would be great. Mm. Waleed, can I just come back to the, the issue though you raised about the spread of conspiracy theory? Um, you know, are we actually seeing it spread more? So if you think back to conspiracy theories have been around forever. And if you look back, you mentioned the war on terror before, if you look back to some of the conspiracy theories, say around 9-11, you know, that it was all the US setup, um, the CIA did it and so forth. That was there, but it never really dominated the narrative. One of the things I think that is happening now is the conspiracy theorists and those who are exploiting them, and there's an awful lot of exploitation happening around conspiracy theory stories these days, is the focus on anxiety, right? So it is about empowerment. I agree with Rebecca entirely, but there's something about the kind of uncertainty and anxiety, the unseen enemy, yeah. Yeah, the unknown enemy, that I think has really, really ramped this up. And that is being exploited to its maximum. So you see, there's I have a colleague, um, Lydia Khalil at Deakin University, who's doing some really interesting work thinking about the relationship and, and mapping the relationship between the wellness movement and conspiracy theory, looking at um, mothers groups, you know, who are who are starting to sort of buy into this. So I think there is what I would call an unconventional spread of some conspiracy theory ideas that are resonating. The question that we have to ask is, why are they resonating at this time? And what are we going to do about it? Because actually, conspiracy theories themselves are forms of social harm. Let me try to bring all these different pieces of the puzzle together that we've assembled. So we have a series of divergent interests that lead us to be more rivals than a team at certain times as we go through different phases of COVID-19. We have some increased trust in certain kinds of politicians to lead us through this, uh, relying on health advice. We like our health system, but at the same time, this is complicated by all kinds of what we might call informational fracture, right? So people taking different fragments of information about how the virus works or doesn't, et cetera, and coming up with their own thing. So you get these conspiracy theories. That, it seems, is a reflection of an undercurrent that's been in society now for a long time. This is being amplified, COVID-19 or not, that's becoming a more prominent mode of discourse. So if we take all of that and then add to that the anxiety of going through a pandemic, the uncertainty of what it's going to be like as we go through it and how long it'll be here. How cohesive do we end up being at the end of all this? Like, how much hope do you have for the social cohesion of our societies? Uh, well, you go first, Michelle. <laughs> no, I'm just I'm trying gonna... to work out, should we give the, him the bad news first or the good yeah, news yeah, first? Yeah, and I just yeah. want to know whether you have the bad or the good news. Uh, all right. Well, I've got, I've, got, I've got both. Look, one of the really crippling elements of the in terms of social cohesion, has been the loss of everyday social mobility. And by everyday social mobility, what I mean is encounters with people from different backgrounds, whether that's in terms of ethnicity or religion or culture, or indeed economically. And so when you're limited, when you can only move for kilometers, uh, when you can't leave your house for very many reasons, or go to work, you're missing out on all those everyday encounters. And that drives you back into what you might call an environment of 
strong ties where you're largely spending your time, whether it's online or elsewhere, with people who are just like you. So I am hopeful that as we get on top of this, if we get on top of it, whether it's through a vaccine or through other measures, that we're going to see a return of that everyday mobility that allows us to remember and engage with the diversity that is such an important part of our social cohesion. The big risk that I think we face, and this is a phrase that um, I've taken from Michelle Pathé, a forensic psychiatrist uh, who works on threat assessment, is what she calls colliding narcissisms. I think that when we descend into a social space in which it's really just my narcissism about what I need and what's best for me and what I want and what I think should happen, which you see in an extreme uh, sense in conspiracy theory, if we get to a struggle between colliding narcissisms, that is going to create long-term and possibly chronic damage. And I think that there is a genuine risk of that. I really, really worry that that's a direction that we could head in. Yeah, no, I agree. And one really, I think, unedifying example of that is in terms of colliding narcissisms is what's happening with the very unhelpful discussion about generations. So so this kind of idea that, you know, older people can be something, you know, they're, they're kind of, there should be roadkill on the, I mean, this is an extreme version of it, but roadkill on the pathway to recovery. Then people look at younger people and say, you know, you're entitled, you want everything handed to you. But there's absolutely no doubt that those young people doing the HSC or the final year in COVID entering a system where the labour market is incredibly challenging and the university sector is expensive and shriveled, are going to remember this time as the beginning of their adulthood as already facing numerous barriers. So we've got a real, it's absolutely inevitable that in a situation where there is greater public debt, less tax revenue, that governments will feel like they have to pick winners or losers and whether that's groups of citizens or whether that's sectors of the economy. And I am really anxious about how they will make that selection, how they will choose and what criteria they will use. And it is something I'm very worried about. So I have one other spanner to throw into the works here. And that is that any way you cut it, this pandemic triggers an economic crisis, whether it be a recession or even a depression. And it's going to be bad news. We're going to have to figure out a way out of that. But when I look to history and I look to the social consequences of those things, I see frankly terrifying precedents. And when I say frankly terrifying, I mean that of the highest order. So this is what we saw happen with Nazism. It, it emerged out of the defeat of Germany in World War One, but then the economic collapse that followed that. Out of the depression, you get Nazism. Genuine deep crises of that sort, they're not contained. They create all kinds of malignant social politics that then make social cohesion not just impossible, but under siege. It becomes seriously dangerous, dark stuff, and that process appears again and again in history. And then I looked at a recent statement from ASIO saying that the pandemic seems to be driving an increase in far-right activity, that they're monitoring, and that part of that is racially targeted, partly because of the theories about the origins of the virus, that kind of thing, but partly because this sort of environment is fertile ground just generally for the growth of that kind of far-right politics. Hey, 
just lays over there, Am I being hysterical, Michelle, or do we have something very, very serious to look out for here? Um, You're not being hysterical, and it is very serious. So your historical analysis is absolutely spot on. And I, I would reinforce the point that genuine deep crises, particularly economic crises of the kind that we're seeing around the world in response to the pandemic or as a result of the pandemic, those genuine deep crises are already themselves transformative. There are things that have changed already that are going to take decades or generations uh, really to be able to resolve. And one of the worst consequences of these is the upsurge that we see in polarization. So polarization is, you know, when you get people who start to gravitate towards extreme poles on one or another side of an experience or a situation or an argument. And polarization, which is exactly what we see when we look at the rising threat of far-right extremism and the normalization, things that 10 years ago would have raised a lot of eyebrows, people would have simply laughed at it, are now actually starting to gain traction. So this is absolutely a threat. And I don't think that there's anything hysterical about it. The question is, in a country like Australia, where I think even though we do see Uh, fraying at the edges, and we have seen increased polarization, there is still, I would argue, a fairly healthy centre. One of the things about the kind of centrist society that we have, by and large, is that people take it for granted. I think that one of the things that we're going to have to do going forward is we're going to have to learn how to fight for that centre. We're going to have to learn how to fight to hold that centrist territory. Because if we allow ourselves to lapse into the sort of normalization of this very kind of polarized take on the world, that is when things like right-wing extremism will find even more fertile ground to take hold. We already see some worrying signs of that, but I don't think we're yet at the point where we're helpless to do anything about it. I hear what you're saying, but I worry that Sort of just saying, well, we're a fairly centrist society. We have a healthy centre in Australia. That should hold us in good stead. We're not like America, for example, where that polarisation really has become quite extreme. I get that. But we are in a globalised world. Even as we're in lockdown, we're globalised because of social media that we use or just the internet generally uh, that we're spending increasing amounts of time on, by the way. And I just wonder whether or not that centre can hold in a globalised environment that's becoming more and more polarised. Well, well, well. look, I, I, I think that's one reason why we have to fight for the centre and not simply take it for granted. So I don't think we can just rock back on our heels and say, oh, the centre is going to hold and she'll be right and we don't have to worry about it. I think that we naturally need to actively invest in that centre. We have to actively embrace why that is such a valuable thing to have and to grow and to strengthen. I think one of the things that, and I think about this all the time because I'm, I get carried away in my optimism about what's good about this country, but I also do hope that my optimism isn't a kind of Pollyanna-ish hope that it's all going to be fine because you can see one thing happen that kind of sneaks up on you and then it's a runaway train, especially in times of economic uncertainty. And given Australia's character has always been one with an extraordinary tension between parochialism and re- reaching out to the world. Mm, mm. You know, we are constantly oscillating between those two things. And something like a virus, as it is, that started in China, that has shut the world down, could potentially make us much more parochial, much more defensive, much more insular and much more hostile to difference. And we've already got those seeds in our national character. 
One thing I think we've really had rammed home to us throughout this is that we love a closed border. A travel ban will be placed on all non-Australian citizens coming to Australia. Australia will close the border between its two most popular states. The border with New South Wales will be closed. People should stay in their own state. Yeah, it doesn't seem to matter what the border is, whether it's a state border or a national border. If you come up with some kind of sub-state borders, we'd probably (laughs) want them closed too. Um, In some ways, in fact, that's what we have Mm. in Victoria, Mm. don't we? We've got a ring around Melbourne, uh, and then I think I recall northern Queensland at one point called for it to be separated for the purposes of COVID from the rest of Queensland. And can I see, I can see as a a Sydney sider who's recently dating, I've got to say some people won't, from the eastern suburbs, won't even come to the inner west. Hmm. But that's always been the case that's in Sydney, familiar, hasn't it? Familiar. It's, and, and in Melbourne. <laughs> and in Melbourne. I am worth the cross city tunnel, but apparently not. Well, there. yeah, I, I couldn't possibly comment. Um, but it is so, interesting. We, so we love a closed border. It politically works, much to Scott Morrison's frustration, which is perhaps ironic given the way that borders have figured <laughs> so much in the coalition government's politics for so long. But we really do love that. And we have a virus that, as you point out, is in its way personified, right? It's connected to a particular country. I mean, would you, Rebecca, want to be a Chinese-Australian right now or in five years' time? No, you wouldn't. And you wouldn't want to be a Chinese international student, the most of whom have been completely abandoned by the government, some of whom are having to go to get care packages and go to soup kitchens to be able to survive. Would you want to be a Chinese restaurant or Chinese business? It would be extremely difficult and it will remain extremely difficult. It already was previously. You know, the biggest concern before the pandemic, and it was raised in research all the time that I was doing, was... Chinese political influence, Chinese economic power, Chinese people driving up house prices and all the rest of it. Now we've added this to it. It's, um, you know, genuinely concerning. I think we've just about outstayed our welcome now. So I guess all that's really left is the watching brief. What are you looking at in this area that you think probably has the most to tell us or might determine most how social cohesion all turns Mm. out? I am keeping a watching brief on the extent to which we are seeing varieties of extremism and varieties of social polarization accelerate and normalize. And to the extent that they do both accelerate and normalize, then I think we are going to be in serious trouble. And I say that in part because we've actually seen exactly those uh, dynamics occurring elsewhere in the world. So if you look at a series of other countries, I mean, it's absolutely breathtaking. The extent to which electorates are choosing authoritarian leaders in countries where you would have thought 10 or 15 or 20 years ago that that would not be possible. That is a really, really scary prospect. And I think there is a risk of that here. The other thing that I'm keeping a watching brief on is how we handle the kinds of vulnerabilities that have been thrown into such stark relief. Because one of the drivers for people turning towards more authoritarian forms of government and leadership is the sense that they are so vulnerable that things have become so fragile that only the kind of false promises that you hear from dictators and authoritarians are going to be the things that get society working again and that help them feel protected and supported. There's a lot to watch there, I will admit. Um, Just one observation I make just quickly is that the turn towards authoritarian leaders is interesting, but what is also interesting is that those leaders in several cases have proven to be the most inept at handling COVID-19. You're seeing it in America, you're seeing it in Brazil. Mm. Britain's a slightly different case but you're seeing a version of it there. I'd be interested to know whether or not the appeal of that kind of politics survives Mm. that incompetence. 
I guess only time will tell. Mm. Anyway, uh, Rebecca, what are you watching? Uh, well, I'd be interested to see what happens with the One Nation vote over the next couple of years and whether that dynamic and whether the political payoff for the kind of parochialism and this kind of insularity starts to work its way through the ballot box. And I suppose I'm always... I'm always fascinated to see in a time of economic and health crisis whether people are open enough to think about other things. So are they still trying to find a way at a time of extreme worry about how they're going to survive, about whether they still say, no, it's important that we have a good education system and it's important that we do something on employment and education for people. And it's important that we we keep doing the things that we wanted to do previously. Like, So to what extent are we going to stay calm and carry on or are we going to just curl up in a ball, stock up on canned goods and say, and kind of say, <laughs> well, you know, if a whole lot of old people die, I don't care. And, and up until this point, you know, certainly in the first stage of lockdown, what people were doing, what the data showed is that the vast majority of people didn't think they were going to get the disease and if they did, didn't think they were going to die. But they were absolutely prepared to change their life quite dramatically so other people wouldn't. Now, whether we are prepared to continue to do that in 6 to 12 or 18 months' time and whether we start to reward politicians who say, we don't want to live that way anymore, we don't, that's not an ethos that we support, then that will be a real indication that, that stuff's gone mm. a bit haywire. The more you withdraw, the more you retreat, the more you say it's only about the me, me and mine, and not about the us, the less resilient you become and then the less able to adapt and to cope um, with with new crises uh, or new emergencies or new stressors. And it really starts to unravel from there. You know, there's a a saying in the climate movement around resilience, which is get to know your neighbours, which is about that you are you are stronger if the community around you is strong. That's right. It's a social ecology. Exactly. If you can walk across the street and you know your neighbour to say, here's some pasta, can I have some toilet paper? Or I've got to do a Zoom meeting for work, can you look after my kids and tomorrow I'll look after your kids while you have a Zoom meeting. I know these are small things, but these are things coming up in my research when people say, I actually now am relying on those kinds of relationships to keep going and to keep talking to people and to keep feeling like emotionally I can get through this. And so bunker, hunker attitude is not going to get us through this at all. Absolutely. Michelle, Rebecca, thank you to both of you. Your input has been invaluable. Thank you, Waleed. Looking for your next favourite podcast? Why don't you head over to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. I talk to all kinds of amazing women who are making a difference. Good women, great chat.